Welcome to Time to Adapt, where we break down movies and the books behind them. I'm Selena, and with me today, as always, is... Mac. (laughs) Schaefer. Since we found out recently that since this year's the uh this year's the 200th anniversary of the book of frankenstein so that is what we will be talking about today all right so i feel like a lot of people have read this book in high school but don't really remember really what it's about everyone kind of already has that idea of the monster which a lot of people call frankenstein but that's the dude that made it yeah so we'll just like quickly go over the synopsis of what Frankenstein, the story is, and um, yeah, so the book uh, is a story about Victor Frankenstein. He's a young scientist who creates this grotesque creature in a very unorthodox scientific experiment. Um, The interesting thing about the book is it starts off, well, it's written in the form of in a framework where it starts off with this character called Captain Robert Walton, and he's writing letters to his sister. Um, So it opens up with Captain Walton, um, who sets out to explore the North Pole and expand his, like, scientific knowledge in hopes of achieving fame. And during that voyage, he and his crew spot a dog sled driven by this gigantic uh, (coughs) figure, and then a few later, hours later, they rescue the nearly frozen Victor Frankenstein. And as they nurse him back to health, he um, re- he tells um, Walton his his story in in a way to try and as a way to warn Walton about like obsession. So Victor starts off by talking about his childhood. And how his parents um, adopted Elizabeth Laver Rent. I, I always fucked up her last name. But she's like this orphan daughter of this dude. And <laughs> who's not important because they never really talk about him. Yeah, we don't talk about But him. basically, she's important in the story because Victor falls in love with her. Um, so when he goes off to the university he like buries himself into his experiments because his mother dies and that's how he deals with grief by just not dealing with it and he excels in all the sciences and then he gets like super obsessed about trying to like develop this technique to like give life to non-living matter and so he's like i'm gonna do this but on a humanoid and so he tries to do it several times and then he realized that he has to like it works better if he just puts the parts together so he does some grave digging and he creates the creature who's like eight feet tall and is just like really not a pretty sight no (laughs) no 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 and um yeah, he's like has yellow eyes and his skin barely conceals like his muscle tissue and his blood vessels are underneath and he's just so he does bring the creature to life and he's so like <coughs> repulsed with his work that he runs away immediately. And the story, it's one thing interesting about the book is it there's several chapters which are focused on the creature's point of view and it starts off with kind of like his birth. So you experience what the creature kind of experience where he's just like left to fend for himself. And it's really tragic. It is really tragic because at first the creature doesn't know how ugly and abhorrent he is. Besides he does run into people and he doesn't know why they're running away from him. And so like he kind of realizes the creature kind of realizes what a monster he is. Uh, like visually um so and he starts to hate victor because of just like how he abandoned him and how he's not taking any responsibility for like what he's created um yeah so victor kind of falls ill from the experience because he's a pussy <laughs> sorry i'm not a fan of victor frankenstein <coughs> okay he's, yeah he is not he's a such a dick <laughs> he's, he's such a whiny dick i'm sorry <laughs> i just don't like him i think <laughs> one of the things i find really interesting about 
Vic, Victor Frankenstein as, as a character is that like um, how do I put this in the book he comes off as someone who um, he's not all there he's, he's more- so obsessive where he just disregards one his own well-being and the well-being of others just so he can prove that he's right yes and it gets it like ruins it ruins his relationship with his family at one point it um, basically when the creature finally um confronts victor he try he finds him and he like pleads with him to hear his tale and like at this point the creature is intelligent and articulate he reads and writes um and this is like the chapters where he's talking about him but he demands that the creature demands that victor create a female companion like him so he's not lonely because in the chapters where it's the creature ex- talking about of his experience he realize like he sees that no one will ever love him because he looks the way he does and so he wants to not be lonely and um and he, yeah, he's like, he promises that he and the other creature will vanish to like South American wilderness and never appear. Um, but if Victor refuses his request, the creature is like threatening to kill Victor's remaining friends and loved ones. Yes. So he kind of <coughs> like, Victor kind of agrees. He's like, I guess. <laughs> and then as soon as like, as soon as he starts building it, he starts to realize, you know, what am I doing? He's I, like, they could breed and, like, create a crazy race of humans and, and that could destroy it, he, everything. And he tears it to pieces. And, of course, the creature is very mad about this. And then kills and Elizabeth. Because that's his, the only purpose yep. in, her, in the story for her. Like, yeah, pretty much. Um, Mary Shelley, but you know, but Mary Shelley. Yeah, that's true. It's like, um, good for you for writing this at 18. Yeah, and it was published anonymously when she was 20. And then, like, I, as, I, as I read, I think it was, wasn't until the first ever French pressing of the book that she actually got, like, credit as Like, she, it was underneath her actual name, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's the story of Frankenstein. I'm kind of, like, drifted off because... I really dislike him. Yeah. And <laughs> well, it's I, I feel so sympathetic to the creature, I'm even sympath- though he does like in the end, he's like gives this horrible ultimatum. It's like, I will kill all your fa- friends and family. I'm like, I get that you're hurting, but you can process your grief in a different way. Yeah. Well, this was this is the eight, this is they didn't have therapy. This was the 1700s, <laughs> 1800s. They didn't have that kind of stuff. Everything Fancy was stuff. Everything like, was hyper masculine. Yeah, but so what I think is um very fast. What was fascinating about um both Victor and the creature to me, among many things, is that um Victor, I I I kind of sympathize with him in that he's probably one of the only people in the world who is ha- who has this sort of burden on his on his shoulders that he's created he's the first person on 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 earth who's become god he's created a completely different human being but then he freaked the fuck out he freaked the fuck out i mean i i see ya (laughs) i mean yeah but to be i guess it's understandable if you did like take a bunch of dead body parts and like sewed them together and hoped for the best it's not some edgian shit right there Ooh, yeah, that it. He he won. He was he's like bordering serial killer. Yeah. Except for he's just too. At uh, least he had. At least he had standards. He didn't kill people. He, he just he just took dead bodies. He just took the dead ones. Yeah. So and he only took dead criminals. So what does that? I guess he was just like. I guess they don't really need their body parts anymore. And no mean, one cared about them to begin with. Yeah. Eh. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> eh. So that's how like just. <coughs> Victor Frankenstein, eh. <laughs> the creature, good at the beginning. Eh. That's a, that's what you can say about the morals of the of the characters. <laughs> yes, eh. quite so. And um, so of course, it being Frankenstein, being um, the book itself is 
I would argue the very first sci-fi book ever written. One of the earliest books of, of to be considered science fiction. A lot of people consider it horror. I don't see it as horror because... Well, it is very gothic. It's very gothic. So yes. you, I would, I would say it is like... I would still consider it a gothic horror. Uh, All right, yeah. Just because... It is this this horrible like looking creature, but the sci-fi aspect of it is the the technology and uh, bringing this like the playing god, like what consequences like that's played out in so many other like and books and other films that come yeah way after this is that's the theme that's really prevalent is. What happens when you play God and the consequences? And I, guess, I think that's yeah. a very fascinating. I think it's a very fascinating thing to look at, especially at like what this, the, what was going on when Mary wrote this book. Um, she was fascinated with um, this at at the time. There was a lot of scientific experiments going on with electricity because yep. it was the first time that they were using electricity to. They realized it could conduct through the body, and there was. Um, there was all those the early stuff of like you know bringing frog like electrocuting frogs to see what would happen and um, animals and I'm pretty sure some someone tried oh yeah someone tried to try on a human it was only a matter it was only a matter of time but they had um, kooky science back then well cool science but at the same time like they did some kooky stuff but yeah so as we said before like she started writing this when she was 18 like the famous story that goes with how she came up with this is um, uh, she, Percy Shelley, which was her future husband, like they weren't married at this point, Lloyd, Lord Byron and John Paul, help me with this name. I can, these people's names just are hard sometimes. John Polidori, Polidori, that's what he's called today, uh, decided to Polidori. have, <laughs> decided to have a competition uh, to see who could write the best horror story. They were all like, they were in Geneva and it was storming out on a dark and stormy evening. <laughs> These four literary minds came together and they were like, let's see who can write the best horror story. And it sounds like the beginning of a great Black Mirror episode. You were telling me the other day yes. that this was... Okay, first let me finish my bit, and then we're going to talk about Black Mirror yes. and this theory. Anyways, um, yeah, so after like thinking about this for days, she dreamt... She had a dream about a scientist who created life and was horrified by what he, he made, and then that dream kind of evolved into the story that she then wrote. Anyways, back to the book. Yeah. We were talking about Franken's, like, before this, while we were just kind of, like, brainstorming, just, like, what we kind of wanted to talk about, and then just, like, throwing back some of the stuff that, throwing back and forth yes. stuff we'd heard. Mac brought up that, the, where did you hear this? I don't know. Okay, so there's a pop, there's a YouTuber I follow, his name is Browse Held High. Um, I believe his real name is Kyle Calgren. Um, and he <laughs> just did a, a video essay about um, the Netflix TV show Black Mirror. It's it's an amazing show. If you if you haven't seen Black Mirror at this point, um, what are you doing with your life? It's so. But I, I I don't but I don't blame you because it's very. It's so stressful. It's, it, it's like a it just it's basically like a social media era Twilight Zone show, and um, Brows Held High made an argument in this latest one of his latest videos, um, which takes Black Mirror and kind of puts it up against a lot of famous sci fi works. And he argues that one of that Frankenstein is the earliest sci-fi. Um, is he would of, consider it the earliest Black Mirror episode? Like, yeah, it's very much like an episode in Black Mirror, where like um, in a lot of Black Mirror episodes, um, there's all this crazy like technology that makes people do crazy things. And in in it follows like it kind of follows a formula. Not not every episode because each <coughs> episode varies. Um, but there is kind of like a theme of there's this technology, then something goes wrong, like, or it's used that. And there's also, it's, there's also one of the interesting facts is that like a lot of these 
it's not really the technology. It's the people. The people who are twisted or use the technology for bad reasons. And in this way, Victor... Like, season four, episode one... USS Callister. (laughs) But we're not not talking... We're not going to talk too much more about Black Mirror, because I just thought that was an interesting video. I wanted to give a shout-out to Browse Held High, because it's a really great video essay. And it's an interesting thing to think about. It's like, like, it's cool to see how... Frankenstein was kind of like the beginning of sci-fi and like, look at us now. <coughs> but yeah, so yeah, so Frankenstein, it's has a lot of elements of the gothic novel, as we were saying, and a little bit of the romantic movement. Um, but yeah, it's an early example of uh, science fiction. So it has had a huge influence as like on literature, popular culture, and like, com- and spawned kind of the genre of horror stories and films and plays. Oh yes. Um. So I guess that kind of starts to bring us into adaptations. Like absolutely. So the world. So one of the earliest um, surviving adaptations of Frankenstein was from 1910, and this is interesting. It was made by Thomas Edison Studio at the time. Um, and it starred Charles Ogle as the the monster, so to speak. And it's a very weird. It's only the movie itself is like oh god, like twelve or fifteen minutes. It's on YouTube. It's public domain stuff. Um, it's fascinating in like how they. Um, <coughs> excuse me, I'm I'm still recovering from a, a cold, so sorry that I'm coughing. Um, the way they um the way Frankenstein makes the creature is very fascinating um it's like in a giant like bowl thing and it like slowly comes together almost like reverse deterioration it just builds itself up and it looks kind of like it kind of looks like a stuffed doll mm-hmm. when he comes out but anyway it's kind of cool um you get a chance check it out but it's really nothing much i guess the only fast um interesting fact that i can t- say about it is that it was considered lost for many years until one print was found in a barn in Wisconsin in the 1970s. So that's See, how we're it got. kind of important. Wisconsin's <laughs> kind of important. Home of serial killers and happy days. But anyway. And the, the finding place of the 1910 version of Frankenstein. Frankenstein. <laughs> and UFOs come to Dundee, Wisconsin. Anyway, so. Anyways. Um. <laughs> Talk about that, Travel Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah. Get get on us. Sponsor us, Travel Wisconsin. Anyway. Or don't. Or don't. <laughs> okay. Uh, Graham's giving me just a... Mm, <laughs> <luck>. <laughs> um, of course, though, probably the most famous interpretation of Frankenstein comes from 1931. And that is the Universal Studios Monsters series with Boris Karloff as the monster and Colin Clive as Frankenstein. And that's where, and this is the film where we get a lot of the, the I guess. Formulate the cliches, so the to cli- speak. I guess they've turned into cliches, but at the time this was all new. Uh-huh. Um, but this is where it's the, he's alive, it's alive, you know. It's alive, it's alive, and the, it's moving. Yes. The thunderclap in the castle and um, just a lot of those elements that we kind of associate with Frankenstein, like what he looks like, the, the weird little screws in his head and just his boxy face. Mm-hmm. Like it all came from this movie and then movies coming after this were just like, you know what, I guess this this is how we do it. A yeah. fun fact is that um, it was shot in black and white, but the makeup was put on Boris Karloff's face green. So when like the idea of him being green, that all comes from because there are um, behind the scenes they had made him, they had given him green makeup, and it was a very, very tormenting um, series to, um, or not series, but like. It was a grueling time to put on all the makeup. It was done by Jack Plants, or Jack Pierce, I think, is his name. I'm just going to make sure that name is right. He was a known, um, he was the, like, OG, yep, Jack Pierce. He was the OG guy to do all the um, monster makeup. 
And like almost everyone who went to Universal Studios, they basically kicked him out without a without a second thought in the late 40s. And it wasn't until he was much older that people realized how how important he was. So, but getting back on track here. Um, so with Frankenstein, it came out the same year as Dracula. And the idea was that um, there, for a couple of uh, of the performances, they had it show like back to back, and that's why at the very beginning of the movie, of that one, there's a man who comes out on stage like, "How do you do? I'm about to tell you about the story of Frankenstein. It may shock you, it may terrify you, it might even horrify you. Dun, dun, dun. And if you if you are not, if this is not the kind of film you'd like to see, well, now's your chance to." Well, we warned you. Mm-hmm. Which, that was filmed from, um, that was shown during the Radio City Music, uh, Radio City Music Hall premiere. And they kept it for, they kept it um, for the main run of the film. And the film itself is really short. It's only about an hour and 11 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's sort of, it's sort of um, put in semi-modern times. It's not set in like the, uh, late 1700s, like in the book, um, it's more like turn like 19 early 1900s. Yeah, it's like um, really like early 20th century. And there's, I mean, 21st. Yeah, 20th. 20th Halt. century. Halt. <laughs> 20th century. Um, <laughs> yes, and it's not a true. Like, it's not episode a very... if we if we don't fuck up our words. Yeah, because because. Words are hard. Um, but what's interesting is um, they built these sets for um, the film for Frankenstein. And um, those sets are still up. They're used many times for a lot of uh, Universal films and productions. Um, actually, my roommate went, went on one of those sets, I believe, at one point. And it's, it's, it's Lucky really bastard. Cool. Yeah, lucky little bastard. <laughs> anyway, so um, after that movie, there was a just a slew of other ones that Universal put out. There was The Bride of Frankenstein. Which it, is well, quickly just inserting, like, the 1931 version, like, it did remarkably well. Oh, beyond well. It did well. so well. People were just, like, clambering for more. <coughs> and um, it became iconic. Yeah. It was, like, the top movie in the U.S. box office for that year. Mm-hmm. So they were just like, well, Frankenstein makes money. <laughs> so, yeah. As and, Mac was saying, they just started... Uh, putting out a bunch of more, like, bunch more Frankensteins. Like, what were they? There was, well, the the most notable sequ- one was, sequel was The Bride of Frankenstein, mm. which is one of those very rare sequels that's as good, if not better, than the original. Um, this one has a lot more um, similarities to the book. Um, for example, the, the monster comes across uh, a blind man, and they become friends. And mm-hmm. there's a bit where he he smokes a cigar. It's really funny. <laughs> and then the, he he drinks he drinks ale with him, and he sees him as a friend. And then um, at the end, when the the creature, the bride of Frankenstein, is made, um, the monster's like, "She hates me. We belong dead." Which I believe that that's exactly from the book. Is like, you know, we, I belong dead. Mm-hmm. Um, I might be mistaken, but anyway, no, yeah. I'm going to have to, like, look back, but, yeah, yeah. anyways. Okay. okay, anyway, so, after that, there was so many others. There was The Son of Frankenstein. There was Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. Yep. There was House of Frankenstein. There was, um... There's just so many that, like, so we, we couldn't list them all. Uh, cause there's because there's just, like, every freaking year. <laughs> there was just, like... <laughs> Not like every year, but that's what it's like. Just the list just goes oh, on and on. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. That one's pretty good, actually. <laughs> um, but because at that point, Frankenstein was in the public domain, so to speak, mm-hmm. there was no copyright. So it wasn't just Universal putting out putting out these movies. Especially in the late 50s and early 60s, um, there was a lot of schlock that came out of it. Um, there was... Like I was a teenage Frankenstein, and there was um, <laughs> some very, very, very bad ones. Like some very B movie. Mm-hmm. Among them, and I'm gonna make a really, I'm, I shouldn't normally talk about these ones because they're just garbage schlock. But <laughs> there's this one that I feel 
everyone should at least know about. So, in 1973, um, director Paul Morrissey got funding from Andy Warhol to do this, um, these two movies, Blood for Dracula and Flesh for Frankenstein. And they are these weird art house gortastic gortastic monstrosities and flesh for frankenstein stars udo kier first off let's just say that sounds like a porn like (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it basically is it's basically a and flesh for frankenstein that came out in the 70s so Mm -hmm. like just Keep that in mind when it was thinking released, about this movie. It was released in America as Frankenstein 3D. It was shot with in like 3D, and so like there was like blood coming at you in 3D, and there were boobies and butts <laughs> oh, and God. genitalia in 3D. And um, there's one line that's nope. stated, and it's probably one of the most what the fuck, but also <laughs> glorious lines I have ever heard. And it is Frankenstein talking to his assistant, who's kind of an Igor-like character. And he goes, To know death, Otto, you have to fuck life in the gallbladder. <laughs> it's, it's so... What sense? But... Oh, by, just, by the way... That's so extra. By the way, ten seconds later, guess what e- Guess what the Igor... Guess what Otto does? No. <laughs> Mac told me earlier, and I wish I didn't ask. <laughs> yeah, it's not a pretty move. It's not... Basically, it fucks a corpse. It fucks a corpse. Just yep. skin straight to it. And but then it I doesn't made fuck a- him back to life, but, you know, it, he does it. And then yeah. I was like, oh, so, like, Neon Demon, and then what Mac was... you think they got the idea? That's what he said. On a very similar note, <laughs> um, Nicholas, director of Neon Demon, Nicholas Winding Refn, stated in interviews that... Um, Flesh for Frankenstein is the one movie he didn't make that he wished he had made. <laughs> and no. I'm like, of course you did. <laughs> of course you did, Nicholas. Of course you did. I will never watch that movie. It is something else. Nope. It's not like Caligula, but it's it's up there. <laughs> um, the very next year, though, we had Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein. Which is a delight. It's delightful. If I you, love that movie so if you much. Have, if you haven't seen Young Frankenstein, first off, shame on you. Um, secondly, <laughs> it's one of the funniest movies, like, ever made. It's, it's very, well, like, with every Mel Brooks, it's very Mel Brooks. <laughs> it's just, but also, him with Gene Wilder is just a perfect combo. Yes. They're just, like, oh, I love them both. Yeah. Just um, working was... together. And it, we were talking about this earlier, it's just, young Frankenstein is putting a magnifying glass on all the like cliches and just turning that into the whole joke. Yes. Uh, obviously, he adds his own Mel Brooks flair to it, but the um... but every single trope that has come out from like the original like 1931 movie, like it's in it and they make fun of it <coughs> and it's just fan fucking tastic. <laughs> Great stuff. I grabbed an Abby Normal. You got me an abnormal brain. Abby. Abby who? Abby Normal. (laughs) Just, it's a great movie. And then I love how his hump moves to different shoulders. I'm a rather brilliant surgeon. I can work on that that hump for you. What hump? (laughs) It's it's like the whole, like, gag with uh, Robin Hood. Yes. It's like, I have a mole. I have a mole. I can quote that whole movie watching it. I, I can quote the whole thing, and I'm not sure if I should be proud or not. I'll t- I'll, I think be I'll, proud. I'll be, be proud, proud for now. I'll be proud for Maybe now. Maybe not in like five years, but you know. Mm, I think I'll... Mm, it's, it's, a, it's a talent. I'll put that on my resume. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, now, of all the adaptations, the one that um, I decided to do the most research on was Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein. Now... It's one was this one was literally labeled Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It was it came out in 1994. Um, it came out during the wake of um, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, Coppola was one of the um, executive producers, one of the producers of the project. Um, <coughs> it is. It stars Kenneth Branagh as 
um, Victor Frankenstein. Because why not? Because mm-hmm. it's a Kenneth Branagh film. Like. And <laughs> Robert De Niro as the monster. And I'm very torn about this movie. It's not... On paper, it's a great adaptation. On film, it's not. <laughs> so, they done fucked up <laughs> in in between. I where think- they're ex- handing off the baton from, here you go. And then they shot it. And they're like, well, that's a little bit different. <laughs> There's, I'm going to bring up something here. Um, Frank Darabont was one of the screenwriters. You know him as he wrote the... He directed... He would later go on to direct The Shawshank Redemption, The Green mm-hmm. Mile. And he was one of the original creators of The Walking Dead. Um, when it was good. When it was good. <laughs> um, he called the film the best script I ever wrote and the worst movie I've ever seen. And I'm going to... I'm going to... Um, he, he elaborated here. I'm going to to do a little bit of this quote. There's a weird doppelganger effect when I watch the movie. It's kind of like the movie I wrote, but not at all like the movie I wrote. <laughs> it has no patience for subtlety. It has no patience for quiet moments. No patient period. It's big and loud and blunt and rephrased by the director at every possible turn. Cumulatively, the effect is also was a totally different movie. I don't know why Bronn need to make this big, loud film. The material was subtle. Shelley's books were way was way out there in a lot of ways, but also very subtle. I don't know why it had to be this operatic attempt at filmmaking. Shelley's book is not operatic. It whispers at you a lot. The movie was a bad one. That that was my Waterloo. Ooh. That's where I really got my ass kicked most as a screenwriter. Kenneth Branagh really took the brunt the, the brunt of the blame for that film, which was appropriate. The Ooh. movie was his ver- vision entirely. If you love that movie, you can throw all your roses at Ken Branagh's feet. If you hate it, throw your spears there too, because that was his movie. <laughs> now, Ooh. <coughs> savage yeah and i can't not i have to agree with him a little bit here so the film it very much follows the book minus some some relatively big changes um there is the biggest change is that after um after the monster kills his wife brana or brana <laughs> Frankenstein. <laughs> well, Brano. <laughs> Frankenstein decides to make the wife for, decides to reanimate her, and um, he reanimates her, and she comes back, and like there's a moment when she he's trying to trying to dance, trying to make her remember who she is, and the monster trying to take her away from him, and then like she remembers who she is and sees what Victor had done to her. And she commits suicide. And I agree with Darabont here because it's a very operatic film. It's almost like, at times, it feels like if Baz Luhrmann (laughs) did a Frankenstein film. Now, I love Baz Luhrmann. If you know me, you know I love Baz Luhrmann. But let me tell you, this is not a Baz Luhrmann (laughs) film. This is not a book Baz Luhrmann should ever adapt. It's, um, It's all there. But the, the camera work is really fast and sped up. And there's not, like, like Frank Darabont said, there's not a lot of time for, like, slow buildup. It's just bam, 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 bam. Which was First, a big thing with the book. With the book, it is, <coughs> like, you're, it is, like, a slow buildup to when he creates the monster. And then mm-hmm. there's, like, a... That's, like, kind of, like, the climax of the first part of the book. And then... Um, as they kind of go separate ways, it builds up again <coughs> to the last, to their, like, final meeting. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that I really enjoyed about the book, which I've found with some adaptations that they haven't really got or they just don't really tackle, is just, um, except for probably Penny Dreadful, which we'll talk about. But um, just the subtlety of, like, how how they explore this whole like like birth and death because the 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 creature is born and like the chapters that Mary Shelley wrote which are from his perspective are like very poetic and it's mm-hmm. beautiful because <coughs> he's experiencing what light is like for the first time what sound is and like touch and like tactile like how it feels to have a friend how it feels to and it's like uh, it's kind of just putting you in this mindset of trying to like reimagine what it'd be like to 
like remembering what it would be like to experience new things. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that I found that a lot of it's very much the perspective of Victor Frankenstein, and even that is not as like I guess as a, like the explored how it was in the book where it was just like his basically despair at just like the instant realization of oh I done fucked up like there is there aren't a lot of that it's just like usually like oh no now I gotta kill it <laughs> but yeah so mm-hmm. from everything that I've like and like seen from the Ken Frag and what I'm like <coughs> dude like I'm a fan of you when it comes to Shakespeare but bro we kind of missed the mark <laughs> another another like problem and it's it's kind of funny um is that he the, the, uh, the thing is that Frankenstein um is they tried to market it and tried to make it an erotic film have Please it. don't. <laughs> like now, here's the thing. I can see where they were coming from because Bram Stoker's Dracula had just come out, and mm-hmm. that's a very erotic film. Don't say it like that. I mean, but yeah, erotic. Oh, oh <laughs> stop it! You're gonna be doing it. Your face is hilarious. Like, oh. <laughs> um. So of course, you know, no one's gonna go see um, a movie about a guy who creates a monster without. Some, some sort of hotness or some <laughs> boobs or something. That's why, like, and this is another problem I have with it. Um, Kenneth Branagh at that point was too good looking to play Frankenstein. The like the entire scene where he's create when he's creating the monster, he's like shirtless the entire time. He's just um, look at my muscles. Look at my like, muscles. Look at my look, look at, at me. I'm my chiseled. muscles and there's electricity. Like yes. <laughs> Um, but I do have to give credit. Um, so when he makes the monster in this movie, it's really cool. Um, there's like there's some weird stuff going on. Like he uses like a- um, amniotic fluid from like placentas, and there's a weird scene where he gets all that stuff. And it's it. <coughs> there's like a weird giant. I guess I can call it like a a giant ball sack that hangs over his laboratory, that like um and that has like eels in it that he uses he uses eels to like put conduct electricity through the through the monster. It's very weird. That sounds so weird. It's I have it, not seen that. Bit. <laughs> but it's 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 totally unique and very much its own thing. And because in the book it's very kind of not really, it's very open to interpretation over how. He makes the monster. Yeah. The, so like, that's, she doesn't explicitly expli- that word, explicitly say how the monster, like that whole process of him being animated was. It's just like some sciencey shit. And then boom, he's alive. And Frankenstein passes out. Yeah. And it's because he's a weak little dingus. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> so the movie was like many of you are saying it's, very much a good and a decent adaptation mm-hmm. but it's just not a great not a great movie um it's ambitious and i think it's very it visually the 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 costumes are beautiful the <coughs> oh my goodness um the some of the camera work is really nice but it's just too it's too it's too fast it moves at too fast of a pace and it kind of shows, and there's just like so many things that you're just like, you didn't need, you could have, you could have taken your time with this. You didn't have to move so fast. Mm-hmm. And Kenneth Branagh should not have played the mo- Frankenstein because, in the book, you know, Frankenstein's a very scrawny man. He's not, he's not the the most best looking guy, and he doesn't, he's not all there. But in this, because he's like just, a weird looking little kid and grew up into a like average kind of weird looking dude yeah <laughs> like and just how he's described just she's like he was a <coughs> he was a weird one and then here's <laughs> here's 1994 where very sexy actor kenneth Branagh is doing it and it just it doesn't fit it would be it, it makes a lot more sense when 
the Penny Dreadful version, when we get to that, like, We're gonna get what's to that his very name? Shortly. I always forget the dude's name, but him as Frank Victor Frankenstein, like, yes. He's got the whole look. Yes. Anyways. Yes. Just aggressive yes to Just Penny Dreadful. Harry Treadway. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, um, oddly enough, I think the best adaptation of Frankenstein is a Hallmark version. So this is like this pre, like Penny Dreadful. Yeah, this came out. I believe it was two thousand three. I remember watching it um, as it was a it was a miniseries, um, and it starred. Dude, I think I actually watched this when I was a kid. It's like <clears throat> coming back to me. Yeah. Weird. Um, Anyways, <laughs> so it's got like a, it's got a relatively good cast. Um, William Hurt's in it. Donald Sutherland yep. is in it. Yep, I'm remembering. Yep. yep. <laughs> and it's very much faithful. And there's some extra stuff that um it makes sense. Like there's a scene where he's like he doesn't just go straight from bringing people to life. He doesn't go straight from I think I can bring people to life to bringing people to life. He tries to bring back a dog, and it's really sad. But it's it it, it shows how he's like learning. Mm-hmm. And that process happens in the book. It's like he, as a kid, he messes around with like animals to try and like yeah, bring them to life and stuff. And that's like some an obsession that he's had. And he starts off small and goes bigger. Mm-hmm. So without a doubt, um, I think if if you anyone can find that version, um, I think it's available on DVD. Um, that's probably that's one that would probably be a little bit hard to hunt down, but it should be available somewhere. It should be you can find it somewhere. Um, and after that, um, we're we're bringing up the TV show Penny Dreadful. So, those who don't know, Penny Dreadful was a show. It was on Showtime. Um, it's, it's sort of a League of it's sort of like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen without the name League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah, because it's just all of these like. If you Literary liked, characters from like gothic horror coming together. Yeah, if you liked the if you liked the comic League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but hated the movie, like jump onto Penny Dreadful because that will fill that void for you for yes. like getting another visual form of like a similar kind of story. Um, they're all like not great people, but like you still enjoy them, like you still root for them, even though they're not the best. But, um, yeah, so it's a whole host of different little literary characters. And in season one, you're introduced to Victor Frankenstein. Um, and as we kind of talked about, is like their portrayal of Victor Frankenstein is pretty close to the book. And even yes. the monster, like the the creature, he's yeah. not as grotesque as he's portrayed in the book. Like, because the book that he she gives you a bit of room for imagination. Um, she like she describes like yeah the uh, yellow eyes and like his skin doesn't really cover him, but in the show they he doesn't look like he's falling apart. Well, I think I think one of the things that. Um, he doesn't they, look great, but he doesn't no. look like but falling what I, what apart. What I think is interesting is that they factor in the idea that um, he was so at, because he was sewed up, he's starting to heal. Mm-hmm. It's been like a lot of time, and so like like when you see the monster in flashbacks, a lot of his scars are easier to see. And then slowly, as you get to meet him in the modern time, he is um, the, the the wounds have healed. He still looks very pale. He still looks like pieces of flesh thrown together, but he doesn't look. Mm-hmm. All that, all that bad, and it's interesting because they um they go off on this like idea that like Frankenstein never went to the Arctic. He never tried to. He never died. He, he basically went to he went to London, um, and the monster followed him there. And mm-hmm. it's it's fascinating because um you give um the monster who's played by Roy Kinnear, who bringing back to Black Mirror, he played the prime minister in the national anthem episode. Who. Yeah. Hmm. Oof. Oof. Indeed. Um, but it's still um, we we thought we th- we definitely thought bringing up Penny Dreadful would be a good idea because it's it's a really fascinating little show. And also just like how they portray the characters is what we we found was 
pretty close to how they're portrayed in the book. So, and Penny Dreadful is just a fun show. <laughs> like, it's It dark. is pretty fun. Um, but the costumes are fantastic. <coughs> a lot Eva of Green art. is fantastic. Yes. So, there's one more thing I want to bring up. And I think this um, is just as important. It's a play of Frankenstein. So in 2011, director Danny Boyle brought Frankenstein to stage on stage in London. And it starred Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller. But what was interesting was that they would switch roles every other performance. Hmm. So one performance, you would have Benedict Cumberbatch as Frankenstein and Johnny Lee Miller as the monster. And the next one, it would be swapped. That'd be a nightmare for remembering lines like uh, what you. Well, basically, you learn the entire script. You're, you're yeah, learning. but like, no, I couldn't. <laughs> so it's very steampunks esque, and um, the, there is music by the um, house band Underworld, and it's amazing. And I got, I was lucky enough to go to one of the um, National Theater live screenings of it here in Milwaukee about oh God, three or four years ago. And it was just an incredible thing to see. The best thing about it is that it starts off with the creation of the monster. Ooh. And, like, so, like, you're, you look at the stage, and there's just, like, a giant, like, circle thing. And it looks like a womb. And then you see, like, a hand push up against it. And then slowly out comes the monster. And the first, like, 15 to 20 minutes of the show is just it learning how to walk. So it's flopping around on stage, slowly figuring out how to move. And it's just, it, it, it's great theater. It's fantastic theater. Great theater. <coughs> theater. Theater. So um, I'm not sure if they still do performances of it. Um, it only ran for like three months. But there's probably, um, like I know for a lot of... National uh, theater things. Yeah, you can... If you really want to hunt it down, uh, you can get the DVD. I know they do ha- make DVDs for that. And, like, I know, uh, actually, yeah, so there are some databases where you can actually watch it. All right, great. Well, I'll but, have to look into that. Yeah. So definitely, if you have a chance, check that one out, because I think it's arguably the one of the, the best adaptation of the book I've ever seen. It was not a film version. It was a stage version. Mm-hmm. So I would say when it comes to like kind of, I guess concluding like we there isn't like one adaptation that we can like hold up on a pedestal and say this is the the best one. Like each one that we kind of like talked about, like minus like we're not even including Flesh of Frankenstein. That's in a whole another world. <laughs> that we brought that up because it's just fucking weird. But, um, yeah, so there isn't really one that is, like, a perfect adaptation because from the 1931 version, <coughs> there there are a lot of elements that are changed um, that are different from the book. But there are a lot of bits from these adaptations um, that are truthful. So it's, like, kind of a collection. Yes. It, there's more of a collection of films that you can see, like the Hallmark um uh, if you really want, you could watch Kenneth Moraga and like. The- it's not. It, it's it's a guilt. The, the Kenneth Moraga version is a guilty pleasure. Yeah. I don't want to watch it every all, every day, but if I have nothing to do, I'll put it on. Mainly because I love Robert De Niro's performance as and, the monster. Yeah, and then the 1931 version, like <coughs> those. <laughs> those are a good like col- like start to kind of exploring like how like how it translates to film yes um but yeah it's a solid book oh yeah and i've been listening it's such a fun character oh i did want to bring up like i know there were um few other frankenstein movies that came out recently especially the one that came out with daniel radcliffe victor frankenstein we're not talking we're not about talk about because that one. like first of all it's straight up hot garbage it's garbage um and it doesn't even qualify mm-hmm. so I also want to bring up, um, there is a fantastic audiobook version of Frankenstein currently available on audible.com. 
and it's narrated by Dan Stevens of The Guest and Downton Abbey and Beauty and the Beast. And it's it's so good. It's what I've been listening when I when I re when I reread the book, I basically listened to this entire audiobook version of it and it's just exquisite. And it's so. like it's not <coughs> usually when people think about classics, they're like, ew, like old people, like old Englishy. But it's it's really not hard. It's not no, a hard book to go not through. At all. It's really enjoyable actually. Um, especially since so many of the chapters are so poetically written too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that kind of wraps it up, I guess. Yeah, it does. It's like it's a good story, people. It's a great story. Um <laughs> Definitely, like of, of like all the episodes so far, I've I've enjoyed doing research into this one. Um, it's just been, it's just such a an essential book. I think everyone who was like, I know everyone gets pretty much gets forced to read it at some point. There's a reason you you, you should read it, and it's really good. And even if you like didn't like it when you first read it, like give it a try. Yeah, just see. It's not even like don't so don't look at it as a horror story. Look at it as a it, think of it as speculative fiction. Speculative fiction, exactly. Because that's basically what speculative <coughs> fiction is. And we will do an episode <coughs> more on speculative fiction because we're gonna do we're gonna talk about The Handmaid's Tale at some point mm-hmm. in the future. Because Margaret Atwood, I'm a fan. Spicy meatball. She's a spicy meatball. <laughs> but, All right. Yeah. So that's that's Frankenstein. We'd like to thank you all for. Tuning in. Yeah, so thanks. And we'll have something very special set up for you in our next two weeks. Yep. Thanks for listening, and until next time. This has been Time to Adapt. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. For me, nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, we love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection this spring at Total Wine and More. Cheers!